Hi, I'm Sean Bobbitt, Director of Photography for Judas and the Black Messiah, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today's guest is Sean Bobbitt, BSC, Director of Photography for Judas and the Black Messiah. Sean, welcome to the Go Creative Show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for inviting me on. Well, there's so much to talk about. Uh, I cannot wait to dive into it because this film, first of all, it really is a masterpiece. It looks absolutely beautiful, great acting, tons of buzz around it right now, and for good reason. And we're going to get into all of it in just a couple of minutes. Before we get there, I just want to mention our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives, and of course, uh, encourage all of you guys to follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where we have exclusive content just for our Go Creative Show friends. And all things Go Creative Show is at gocreativeshow.com. All right, so this project comes to you. Timely, important. You know this is going to be, first of all, well-made, well-acted, well-directed. But you know when you're working with subject matter like this, it's going to be newsworthy. How do you approach a film like this that you know is going to have cultural importance? Well, I, you know, I would hope that every film I do has cultural importance of some sort or another. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, and my approach is no different. You know, as a cinematographer, there are, there are very specific things um, that that I, I need to do. And the most important thing is to, you know, interpret the ideas of the director and and, and use those ideas and build on those ideas to create a, a look for the film. Um, and so for me, you know, it, I'm, I'm quite a, you know, I'm like an empty vessel when I come into a project. So when you have a director like Shaka King, who you know, is so passionate and so knowledgeable and so eloquent and such a great leader and communicator, you know, my job is made so much easier because he, he, he was able to explain, you know, why this film, you know, what it is about this film that it was important to him and to the world and how he really wanted to approach it and what the important things were. So, you know, it, when I first start working with a director, it, it's always a case of trying to figure out exactly what my role is. And with Shaka, it was, it was very clear. You know, I, I've got to take his words and make them into images. Do you find that that role changes? You had just mentioned that you, at the beginning, you always want to find out what will your role be. But how does it ever change from... Like you said, being an empty vessel, you know, providing what the director is asking for. Yeah, you know, directors are human beings; they're people, and each one is unique and different. And and some of them are very visual, and they have amazing visual ideas, and they've thought of the film visually for many years, and they have a very strong concept about how they wish the film to be. Whereas other directors are are more into acting and performance. Mm. And, and don't have a strong visual idea. And then there's everything in between the two. Yeah. So it's, it's figuring out, you know, where, where you stand in relation to that person. Because if they don't have visual ideas, then, you know, you, you have to help them create those visual ideas. What do you like more? 
Do you like working with a director that has a really clear, specific visual idea, or do you like to be the one to develop that? No, I'm 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 a collaborator. I like someone who has a really clear, strong idea um, and and knowledge and passion about what they're doing, because that then you know spurs me on. You know, as those ideas come out and as they're being presented, then you know you can you can kind of niggle away at them a bit and hold them up and see if they how they work and see if there's a better way of doing it and sort of and you know come up with suggestions or ideas which the director can either take or leave but you you have a really dynamic dialogue that goes on at that point and that's incredibly creative and incredibly rewarding even if they don't take any of your ideas you know you're still you're exploring the story, you're exploring the subject matter, and so becoming much more familiar with the story and also with the director's take on the story. So that means that, you know, the decisions that you make ultimately in terms of the cinematography are hopefully more accurately portray uh, what what the director's real desires are. It sounds like you are a big fan of pre-production. You're a fan of that exploration period at the beginning, sort of developing what this look will be. Yeah, I think it, it's an absolutely crucial thing. Um, but the, the, the counterpoint to that is so that, you know, and, and I do a lot of research and I do a lot of work and, you know, really try to make sure that, that, <clears throat> that everything is organized all to the one point. And that point is that when we get on the stage, the actors have all the time with the director that they mm. need to find their performance. And also so that that if something changes, and actors are wonderful things. You know, I have no idea how they do what they do. Um, I know. But they do, they do the most unexpected and amazing things. And it's having the open mind that even though you've done all that work for, with one anticipation, you know, of what's going to happen, if it changes you have to throw it all out the window mm. and embrace, you know, what's better. So, you know, yes, it, it's really important to do all the pre-production and get it all done. But then at the same time, you have to have an absolutely open mind because it, it's the, 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 the actors should not be responding to what you're doing. You yeah. should be responding to what the actors are doing. I love that. I love the idea. I mean, I, I direct commercials, so clearly a totally different type of thing that you than you're working on. I've never done really anything longer than maybe five minutes. So that that's kind of my end result. But when I am working with actors, you really want the most amount of time with them. Like you don't want to be bogged down by constantly worrying about the cinematography and the framing and all of that. It's like you want your time on set with the with the actors. And you figure everything else out before like that. That's the ideal situation for at least speaking for myself, yeah. me as a commercial director. That's my ideal. Yeah. And, and as a cinematographer, that's my ideal as well. Yeah. You know, if, if myself and the camera crew can be completely invisible, then then that's perfect. You know, if all the lighting gear and cameras and everything else should disappear so that there is no distraction at all for the actors, then. You know, that's kind of the, the the ideal situation that you want to give to the director and give to the actors. Yeah. Now, to bring everybody up to speed, the film is called, uh, oh, we're a Judas and the Black Messiah. And um, it chronicles a story of Bill O'Neill, who 
uh, is a petty criminal, and he's offered a plea deal to become an FBI informant and gather information on the Black Panther um, chairman, Fred Hampton, which ends up resulting in his death. He's very young, 21 years old, and it is in 1969. So obviously a slim down, very quick, brief overview of the, the concept here. There's a lot more to it. But just to get everybody up to speed there, we're in Chicago. It's 1969. We're doing a um, a piece of really important uh, subject matter, a really important moment in history. I want to talk about the look and how you've how you started to develop what this look would be, because, you know, it's a period piece. It's in Chicago. There's a lot to go here. And you have a lot of like visual examples because this is something that actually took place. This is real life. So you have real examples of what it actually did look like. So can you walk me through how you developed the look for this film? Well, when I first met with Shaka King, the director, um, he brought with him not only this vast knowledge of the era and specifically of the subject, but he also had about 300 photographs Mm. um, from that era as well uh, in Chicago uh, through the 60s. and they were a combination of of black and white and and color, and they kind of became the the initial touchstone um, as to as to the look of the film. Most of them were black and white, and incredibly evocative and incredibly powerful. Mm. Um, and uh, at one point, I said, "Well, maybe we should shoot the film in black and white." And um, he was quite adamant that that was not going to happen. You know. Why, though? Like, what, what was it about color that he really wanted? Well, there's a liveliness. But it's also, you know, when you, when you change something, when you present something like that, you know, as the director, he has to take it to the producers in the studio. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's a battle. That it, unless you really, really are committed to it, it's a battle that's just going to eat up all your time and effort. Yeah. And, and it, you know, in his mind, it was never black and white. And that's mm-hmm. the most important thing, you know, the the because when you looked at the photographs and the color photographs, you know, they're all ectochrome and codochrome of that era. And and the, there's a very specific look they have. They're very high contrast, very strong, dark tones in them, but also, you know, very poppy colors, you know, the, which is what the, the codochrome and ectochrome are famous for. And, you know, these people, the Panthers, they were young. They were 18 to 21 years old. They were vibrant. They were lively people. They were passionate. They were committed. Yeah. And part of that liveliness we wanted to show in the color as well and, and the world we lived in. Also, the 60s, you know, it, it wasn't a black and white world. It was, you know, psychedelia and everything else going on. Um, and it had, And it does have a very specific palette. Uh, and although you know this isn't a documentary and it's not a docudrama, and we weren't attempting to 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 create an absolute facsimile of that world, what we wanted to do in the design and the color was to hark back to an era, mm-hmm. and and you know Chicago in the 1960s was shown to us in those photographs. So we took a lot of the ideas out of those photographs, and you know Sam Lysenko, the the designer. Um, had been on a lot longer than I had and had seen the photographs as well and was adding his own photographs to it. And, you know, he's, he's a great designer and had a, an incredible knowledge of the of just about everything cultural to do with the 60s. 
And so through discussions with Shaka, with, um, you know, with, with, with Sam, and also looking at the locations, we shot in Cleveland um, because basically we couldn't afford Chicago. And, and sadly, there's a lot of Cleveland that still looks like Chicago in the 1960s. Mm. You know, after the the riots there in '69, there were sections of the um, of the town that that were basically left. So, you know, wow. the, the, that area where the um, where the Panthers' headquarters was hadn't changed since the '60s. It, wow. it was really quite quite amazing. Um, and so we embraced. I mean, these are gifts. I mean, amazing gifts to to a filmmaker. So we embrace those gifts, and also as we did, you know you were going to be filming in Cleveland from the beginning, or did you try to shoot Chicago and it just didn't? It didn't no, turn no, out. No, no, the, it was purely cost. You know, Chicago is a very expensive city to film yeah. in. Um, originally, they had looked at, I believe, Pittsburgh, um, but it, it, there are hills. You know, Chicago mm. didn't have hills. <laughs> exactly. Um, and Cleveland's incredibly cheap. I mean, there there is no film industry there as such. Um, locations mm. are cheap to hire. Um, it 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 fit within the budget we had. It's not a big budget film, yeah. And so you know, it it, it worked because of the landscape that still exists there. Sadly, because of the you know the decades and decades of industrial decline. Um, but as we were going through the locations, there 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 was a color that kept appearing. Um, a green, and usually green is not something that um, that you put a lot into a film. Yeah, um, but it, it just it became so evocative of, of that era, and we kept finding it all over the place. So it was something that was was incorporated and became sort of a major point um, in terms of the color palette of the film. So you were just finding green naturally at the locations. This isn't yeah. something that you were painting on. No, I mean it's a lot of the locations were painted, um, but once we found this green, um, it, it was something that that, that we embraced, hmm. and it, it primarily in the um, the Black Panthers headquarters upstairs in the um, in the classroom and the hallways there. Um, yeah. but then it also it occurred quite naturally in the interrogation room at the beginning of the film with um, with O'Neill, and also in the church. Where Brad Hampton gives his his great speech after he's released from prison, um, so you know it was something that we embraced, and it became you know a very strong and powerful part of the palette. What I like about green, just as a color choice in film, is that I feel like it has, it seems to have more range than any other of the primary colors because you can have like a really sickly, scary, awful green, and you can have a very happy, friendly, light green. And I think you, I think that it, it, it's, it has such a spectrum of emotion that it can give you. I think it's a really good color choice. But that said, it's challenging because it can be so many things. And it's so potent as a color when you're looking at it. I mean, did you ever have situations when filming when you were kind of like, oof, Maybe we push green a little too hard or it was too much of it. It was distracting. Did it ever feel like that when you were filming and you had to make some decisions to counteract it? No, no. You know, once, once you embrace something like that, then, you know, it's there. You just have to run with it. And it, it also, you know, it, it contrasted so beautifully with uh, the warmer tones. Mm. But also it, it, um, it does, when you put darker flesh tones in front of it, 
it's very complementary to the darker flesh tones as well. Mm. So it was something that, that you know, we really uh, found worked to our advantage in many ways. And it also gives it a very different feel because rarely do you have green predominant um, yeah. in, in a period piece. So we're replicating the looks of Kodachrome and Ektachrome um, based on the photography that you got from the director and the inspiration stills and all that. How are you replicating that look in your cinematography? Well, you know, a lot of that comes um, in the final grade. We were shooting a digital camera, the Alexa LF, um, with um, the DNA, ARRI DNA LF lenses. Mm. Um, and, you know, the set design is there already. That sets kind of the tone um, of, of the frame itself. But when you get into the grade, and I'm very fortunate, I work with a great colorist, um, Tom Poole, out of Company 3 in New York. Um, he, you know, we, we sit there with the director after everything is edited, and we go through and shot by shot, we, we do sort of real-time Lightroom on it. Oh, wow. And, and try and, and you know, uh, make everything coherent and pull everything into, in, into, into that world. And, you know, and, and I, I love this process because it, it is such a creative thing as well. Yeah. Because you're able to then bring all the ideas together in one space and one time and see what works and, and sort of go from there. So I love that. It's, it, it, it is, you know, I shoot for the color grade. There are, there are so many powerful tools there that you can, you can use as a cinematographer. And when you have a real artist like Tom Poole working with you, he brings a whole nother level to it. You know, he, he creates um, lookup tables that are unique. And because he comes from a very filmic world, he's, he's created these, these film looks which is exactly what we were going for. You know, when we say Kodachrome and Ektachrome, that, that was the, 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 the basic concept, but we didn't try to emulate those sure. exactly. You know, we, we paid homage to them through the contrast and the color saturations. But then when you get into the grade, you know, there's a lot of other things that you can play around with to, to give, uh, you know, more depth to the image to, you know, just to zhuzh things up here and there. And also, the, my favorite thing is that you can you can correct a lot of the mistakes you make and you <laughs> yes. know, make yourself look really good at the end of it. Exactly. Um, well, when you say that you film for color, I don't know if that was the exact quote, but you're... you're yeah, for the grade. Film for the grade. Yeah. What, like, what accommodations are you making? Like, are you... Are you just delivering something kind of baseline and a little bit more flat and letting all of that be, you know, I hate to say fixed because, but you know what I mean? A little, a little like elevated, I guess, yeah. in the post. Because well, I'm seeing, and the reason yeah. I ask is because I see people come on the show and what, what I'm seeing, we've been doing this for almost eight years. What I see is a trend toward in-camera looks. I'm seeing a lot of people talk about, you know, I really, I'm, I'm filtering the hell out of my cameras. I'm making sure that we're getting, like, th there seems to be a real trend, especially in the younger filmmakers as well, to getting an in-camera look. And I think that's a response to having only had experience with being, the ability to have a strong color grade in post. I feel like the people that have been doing it longer are embracing the post uh, side of things a little bit more and using it as a new and effective tool. Um, it just yeah. seems like two two different 
thought processes. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, you know, cinematography, one of the beauties of it is that, that, that none of it is right or wrong. You know, you make your decisions and you live with them. Um, you know, what, I, what I've found over, over the years of, you know, of grading films is that there are certain things that, that I can do in the grade which will take 30 seconds or less, whereas if I do them on the day on the set, it will take 20 minutes. So it's a really powerful time-saving tool. If there's a white wall over in the corner and it's just it's kind of glaring and no one walks past it, I'm not going to spend the time to set up flags and everything else to, to deal with that because I know when I get into the grade, it will take seconds to knock that down or to put a shape on it or yeah. to, to in some way take away its badness. Um, so it, it's, it's knowing those things, the things that you have to do on the day and the things that you can leave. Because the, the idea is to create as much time as possible for the director and the actors on the set so that they're there to find the performance, to hone their performance. They're not sitting waiting for someone to put a, a flag up on a lamp, on a wall, and you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's 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 kind of it's knowing the bits that you can leave and the bits that you can't. And in terms of the look, I light it the way it should look. Now what the camera does, a digital camera is a very different thing. It just takes digits. Yep. It doesn't care what you've done. And from the moment those digits are there, because we shoot in raw data. So it's just zeros and ones. Mm. There's there's nothing else there. When you start to impose lookup tables on it, then you know it changes the look here and there. But if you have the base light colors that you are interested in, then they are still be there when you come to the grade and you can change them and move them around and do all sorts of things. Um mm. But it's also the light needs to feel right for the actors. You know, if it's a nighttime scene and everything's all bright and, 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 and very heavily lit, and the idea is that you're going to pull it down in the grade, then the performance is going to be affected by that. That's a good point, yeah. So it's, it's, it's finding, again, you know, finding that balance. You, you want to get it set up so that it feels right to the actors, that it looks good to the director, that it looks even better to the producers and everyone else down the line who are watching it and are very critical of the Russians as they come through. Um, but at the same time, it still has the latitude inherent within the image that you have created um, to, to give you a chance to change it. Because sometimes a scene as written by the time it's edited is completely different. Mm. And the the energy, the, the emotional impact, the... You know, everything about it is different. And elements of the lighting are fighting against that. Mm. So you want to give yourself a little bit of leeway here to change things as, as, the, as the story changes through the editing process. It's just a fine line that, that you yeah. create and, you know, you, you sort of walk down. Now, when those decisions are made, like there's a big white wall and I'm not going to worry about it right now, are you just going with it because... In your experience, you know that you can fix it, or do you have someone you're bouncing ideas on? Like, do you have a DIT? Do you have a colorist? Is there somebody on set giving you those lookup tables the whole time you're filming? No, no, no. I'd, there is a dit, um, but 
you know, as as far as I'm concerned, the major role of the DIT is to is to wrangle the data, verify the data, duplicate the data, and then mm. get it out of there, get it yeah. somewhere safe. So not um, so much about developing a look. Well, I, I developed the look beforehand as part of the pre-production process. Whenever sure. I'm on a location, I take a lot of digital stills. I take those digital stills back, and then I I go through and I grade them in Lightroom so that when the director and I are talking about shots on a certain location, I can pull up those photographs of the location itself. Mm. And we get a sense of the space as we're talking through you know, the, the shot choices. But also at the same time, I'm presenting you know, potential grades. So he, he, the director's sort of getting a sense of, of how the look is developing and can say, oh, I like that or I don't like that. Can we do a bit more of this or a little bit more of that? Um, those photographs I then give to the dailies colorist. Mm. And, and based upon them, they then create the, the dailies look. You know, on, on this film in particular, I was very fortunate. I was working with a genius um, dit called Mark Willinkin, who has developed a, a unique workflow whereby he does the dailies. He's, a, he's a, an actual colorist himself. So at wow. the end of each day, once we had wrapped, I would go and sit with him for 10 minutes, and we would go through every shot and tweak it. 10 minutes? 10 minutes. <laughs> you were able to do all of that in 10 minutes? Well, you know, he has the basis already. <laughs> yeah. And of course, as, as, as the shoot goes on, there's more and more experience, and he understands what, what it is we're looking sure. for. So, and, and if it were any longer than 10 minutes, I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> Especially know, at the I, end of the shoot the day. Exactly. Over, I want to go home. Everyone exactly. else wants to go home. Um, but, you know, that was the beauty of working with someone like Mark, is that, you know, not only is he a, a, a technical genius, but he's also, you know, a proper colorist as well. And so we were able to, 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 to create that workflow, which, you know, I was really happy because I knew what the rushes were going to look like for everyone yeah. the next day. So there were never any surprises. There was never that phone call early in the morning. Oh, we got a problem. Blah 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 blah. blah and things get blown out of all proportion. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was it was a very well worthwhile ten minute investment every day. I love that. Let's take a moment and talk about MZ Education for Creatives. Now we're all creative here at Go Creative Show, right? So this is perfect for us. And what MZ is is it is a library of the best, the juiciest the greatest content that teaches us creative people how to be better at our craft. I'm talking about hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education covering everything you want to know, directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And it's all there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. Now, education is, you know, the content is important, and you certainly get great content at MZ, but the best thing about MZ is the educators, the teachers. They're the best in the business, and they're at the top of their game. I'm talking about things like the art and technique of film editing, taught by Tom Cross, the editor of La La Land and Whiplash. I'm talking about Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, the Ari Academy. I mean, we're talking about top-level, A-list, high-quality educators teaching you their craft, right? Now, that is huge, and that's what you get at MZ. 
Now, you can buy individual courses, and that's perfectly fine. But I suggest you do what I do. Become an MZ Pro member, because when you do, you have access to everything. And the best part is you get 20% off when you use coupon code GCS20 at takeout, GCS20. So head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ and check it out for yourself. And don't forget, use that 20% off uh, offer, GCS20. Let's, I want to talk about the camera a little bit. You had mentioned earlier that you're shooting on the um, DNA uh, LF lenses. Yeah. Um, what camera are you pairing that with? With the, the Ari Alexa LF camera. Yeah. So it's a, How did you come to that decision? Where, did you do extensive camera tests ahead of time? What else I, was in the running? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always camera testing. Yeah. You know, every, every opportunity I'm given to do tests, I'll, I'll try and get everything new in there and test them. So that I, you know, have a have a as big a knowledge of what everything does as I possibly can, so yeah. that I can make the right decision um, for 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 each each individual project. Um, I had tested and and on the film before and worked with the LF, um, and was incredibly impressed mm. with the college quality of the images. In fact, the um, you know, the first day that I was I was going to test it against the um, the standard Alex XT, I think it was. Um, as I walked into the um, into the room at, at Ari London, they had the two cameras set up side by side. They had two monitors. The cameras were just pointing randomly at nothing, and from the doorway as I walked in, I could see the the quality of the LF. Really, and immediately from that point, it was like wow. What did you see? Like what? 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 what it, it it has to do with with color rendition, but also more important. What I really love with the LF was the was the the shadow gradation on it, ah. from the sort of white to black. If you look on my face, uh, you know the light's dropping off. Sure. Onto me. Now it's a little bit blotchy just through there. You know, it's it's almost a hard line. You know, if you look at, at really great black and white stills portraiture. That's an endless variation of shade of mm. from from light to dark, and that's what the LF has. It's ah. much more photographic in that regard because you simply have because you have more chips, you've got more picture information, and and that was one of the crucial decisions. You know, with this film, it was very important that we get everyone's flesh tones correct. You know, which no one. You know, we we didn't want anyone wearing makeup or anything like that yeah. to try and, and neutralize. There's a great um, history of, of of black faces being really mullered um, with makeup to try and get them to conform um, with what the camera does. And huh. you know, that's that's not what this film is about. This film's about the exact opposite. It's accepting black people as black people, and and we felt it was very important that uh, that you that we get and able or able to accurately reproduce every single flesh tone and to hold those flesh tones correctly throughout the whole of the film. And having worked with the LF camera, I knew that it could do that. Now, have you worked with those lenses before, the DNA lenses? I don't know much about these, but just pre preparing for this interview, I started looking into them a little bit. They look pretty amazing. I mean, obviously the film looks great, but even just looking at the stills that they show you on their site, it, it looks like a great uh, lens package. Can you tell me about them? Yeah. I mean, the, these days, 
you know, all the cameras basically have the same sensor. You know, it's a CMOS sensor. They process the the data slightly differently, so there are slightly different looks with each them, with each camera. But you know, what really makes a difference is the lens itself. And um, the DNA lenses were specifically developed, um, and and they are handmade by one man in a little room upstairs at Airy London. No way. Um, who handcrafts them. And you won't, I mean, part of the, the reason DNA um, stands for do not ask, because everyone's <laughs> asking him, what are the optics <laughs> in there? Because he's taking apart old lenses and new lenses and rehousing them and reconstructing them into unique lenses, you know, that, that are handcrafted. And the idea is to, is to, to, to move away from the precision um, of, of a lot of the modern lenses that are so sharp and they are optically perfect, mm. um, you know, which is, is very useful and a lot of people like that look. And especially if you're doing big VFX and things like that, you want, you know, as much optical purity as possible. Sure. But to me, you know, it's much more interesting to have a funky lens. Um, and these lenses, although they're spherical, they have a lot of the elements of, of classic old school anamorphics. Um, and, and each one is unique and individual. So it, it automatically kind of gives us a period look. But also in, in that widescreen aspect ratio, it, it, um, it gives us you know, a period anamorphic look. So it's subconsciously, it's another way of, of presenting the period to the audience. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. We'll put a link to this in the show note too, but it's it says that the lens system is comprising of rehoused vintage optics with new multi-blade iris for circular bokeh. And there's a whole bunch of information here about how, well, information, I guess, is in quotes about how it's made. They talk about, <laughs> I guess, how it's made, but not really how it's made. Well, not, <laughs> so, not what it's made from. I yeah, mean, exactly. And, you know, the, the, the another tr reason for choosing the LF is because in these larger format cameras, you have a much narrower depth of field mm. or depth of focus. Yeah. Um, so things drop off very quickly. That's interesting. And I, I wanted to ask you specifically about the benefits of shooting 239. Um, because, you know, every decision is a decision. It has to be thought about. It doesn't just appear this way. So there was a decision specifically to shoot 239. It sounds like you really want to embrace the wideness of it with your, you know, the, um, the camera choice and the lens choice. Talk to me just in general. What are the benefits of that aspect ratio, 239? Well, you know, first of all, it's the subconscious benefit that um, you get from the audience, that they think that the film is bigger than maybe it really is. Um, <laughs> so, And that's for free, you know. So I always think that that's, that's a great thing. But I operate the camera as well. And mm. within that frame, you have so many more possibilities of composition. You know, you you can do so many different things that affect subconsciously the audience. You can put them on edge by putting things on the edge of the frame. Yeah. You can make someone really powerful by sticking them smack in the middle. You know, but also you 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 can find compositional elements right into the corners that can lead to you know a lot more sophisticated and interesting compositions. Um, and I find that very exciting um, as well. But also, you have um, the again, you know, going back to the this focus, you know, 
you can fit, uh, say, seven people into a shot very easily. Yeah. And, you know, you if you get it right on the right lens, then they're all in focus within the different planes. But yeah. then when you go into a close-up, you know, on a slightly longer lens, you pull them out of everything else because the focus is just here. Everything around it drops out of focus. So it's, and in this film in particular, I mean, it, it was very important um, for, for Shaka that, that the world see Fred Hampton as a human being and not just as, as you know, a, as a, you know, this amazing orator. And so there were the, all the intimate moments um, where we wanted to be in with him and in with Dominique um, and also in with Lakeith. You know, it's, it's getting that contrast of these big wides where you see just so much of everything and then boom, you're drawn into that person and everything else behind them drops away. And as they drop away as well, you know, you use that word bokeh, you know, yeah. any light source you have in the background becomes this beautiful shape and color. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's that two, three, nine aspect ratio gives you all of those things. Um, yeah. And you've got a lot of crowd shots too. You get a lot of big shots with a million people and a real use for those, that wide framing capability. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you, you look at the, um, at the, the real classic David Lean films. You know, it's all two four zero aspect ratio, and how he mm. uses that is just—it's stunning, absolutely stunning. I often, you know, look back at uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and just recently the Bridge Over the River Kwai, and mm. you know, Ryan's daughter. I mean, it is—it's the most stunning. It's huge. Everything stuff. is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Every shot makes you feel like this is a big movie. And it is. I mean, it was a big movie. It is a big and it movie. Was. And, but and, I, you know, every shot is considered. I was very fortunate, you know, as a documentary cameraman um, just before David Lean died. So David Lean, we'd, um, I did a series of documentaries with him and spent a lot of time with him. Oh, no way. And the stories, I mean, are amazing. But say on Lawrence of Arabia, he worked for two years on the storyboards alone. Wow. And he showed us the storyboards, and they are what is on the film. I amazing. Mean, it, it is an amazing way of making films that simply doesn't are, and can't exist anymore. Wow. Why can't it exist? Well, because no one is going to spend you know, two years. Like well, I guess, I guess the time. It's but... the time and the money. Hmm. You know, it, the, the, the scale of those... You know, they, they would have, if the script said there were 10,000 people riding over the hill, they would have 10,000 people riding over a hill. <laughs> yeah. you know, it wasn't all CG. It was all real. Um, and You wonder if they would back in the day, if they had the choice to use CG, if they would, or are they so film purists that they would be like, no, they'd be afraid of it. Well, I... You, who knows? I mean, it's, um, <laughs> well, you might know. You have an inside. You have some inside knowledge there. Now, well, all right. Well, yeah. I've got a question for you. Yeah. Uh, storyboarding for you. I mean, how important is it? You know, having your experience with him and knowing that that was kind of the the old classic way of filmmaking for some. Did you do you carry that into your own work? No, not at all. Um, I'm a man, a man of my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, storyboards are important for very specific things. Yeah. Um, for example, in this film. Um, the um, the shootout sequences, 
Mm. Yeah, let's talk about those. The the first sort of shootout at the Panther headquarters, you know, we we, we had to spend a lot of time being sure that we had that absolutely planned. Now, the storyboard means that everyone knows what's going to happen. If you're doing stunts and things like that, it's a very important safety element um, so that there are no surprises. Everything can be organized beforehand. Everyone can see it. Everyone knows what's going to happen. Everyone can be safe. But in this case, we had also the the added problem that the road that that takes place on is a major road coming in and out of Cleveland, and they would only shut it for one day. Oh. So we had only one day. You had to, to do that whole that thing whole in one day? Yeah. Wow. And so storyboards for something like that are absolutely mandatory. Um, otherwise, you, you're, you're never going to get it done. Yeah. So, so that was the case. And also in the... Um, in the church where Fred Hampton gives his big speech after coming out of prison, it, it was the same thing. We had one day to do what is one of the most pivotal scenes in the film and also one of the most complex. So again, that's the sort of thing that, you know, it's worth storyboarding so that everyone knows what's going to happen. You can be organized and, and keep moving and get it yeah. done, but not just get it done, get it done well. I want to talk to you about the significance of close-ups and proper use of close-ups. Because, I mean, I know for me in my own filmmaking, especially if I'm in a location that really isn't that great looking, I'll just be like, "Ah, let's get it in the close-up. Let's blur the background out. All is good in the world because you just don't have the best location in the first place. But but close-ups really should be, and I think are in really good films like yours, reserved for specific important moments. I want to get just your thoughts on the philosophy of close-ups and how you use them in this film. In a way, like I say, going back and looking at these classic films, you know, in Lawrence of Arabia, it's interesting because it's about one man. So he actually, the close-up is about there. The Bridge Over the River Kwai, a close-up is never closer than, mm. you know, almost to the, the belly button. Huh. You know, and and it what has happened? Well, it's you know, it's, it's a there's a very long history and the change of, of you know visual um, concepts in filmmaking and television in particular has had a great effect. You know, in the '60s, one of the favorite sayings was, "Television is a close-up medium." You know, it's a little screen, so get in there so we can see the face, and that has drifted them into the film world, so where people have become obsessed with the close-up. If you just put a lot of close-ups into a film. They lose their power. Absolutely. If, though, you save them for very specific moments, then they have an effect. You know, the audience is drawn in to that person and what they're saying or what they're doing. And and that's something that we very consciously, um, you know, worked with in um, Judas and the Black Messiah as part of this, um, you know, of humanization of Fred Hampton. You know, that's where yeah. we see most of the close-ups is in his interaction, excuse me, interactions um, with, with Deborah. Um, and also when he's at the height of his oration. Yeah. You know, so, so it has power. And also with Lakeith, you know, yeah. there are very specific moments with Lakeith and the O'Neill character where all this stuff is going on in his head. And, and you know, Lakeith is doing the most remarkable performances. 
Oh, yeah, he's amazing. It's astounding. And the all the story is being told in his face. Yeah. And so by saving, you know, those moments for the close-ups as well, it adds to their dramatic effect. You did a story with um, British cinema. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes, British cinematographer. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, too, because you go really in depth to a lot of the things we're talking about here and even some other things that we won't have time for. So I encourage you guys to all read that article. Um, but you had mentioned, and this isn't an exact quote, but you had mentioned something about the close-ups being able to show power, but also vulnerability in this film. And I thought there was no better uh, example of that than it's near the beginning of the film. So we're in the scene where um, uh, O'Neill's arrested for using that F- the fake FBI badge, and he's sitting, uh, and he he sort of looks up in this pleading look of like, I'll do anything, just get me out of here. And it showed such an interesting vulnerability in his performance. Obviously, the performance was amazing. But the use of that close-up in particular was so powerful, and it just was like perfect for that moment. And it said so much about his character. Yeah. Well, and also, um, you know, there's a very subtle raising of the camera above his eye line looking mm. down at him. And that, that the height of the camera is also an r- incredibly crucial thing when you're into a close-up. If you're looking up at someone, which we do a lot at, um, you know, when Fred Hampton is giving his oration, it makes that person more powerful and more important. If you yeah. look down at them, it literally uh, diminishes them. And at that mm. moment, when Lakeith, you know, he's, he's, he's stuck, the camera is just slightly above his eye line looking down at him as well. Mm. So it's, you know, there, there are so many things you can do to help with the storytelling in terms of the placement of the camera and also the placement of the character within the lens itself. You know, that, that strength and power thing comes from putting them smack in the middle. You know, and if you watch again, when um, Daniel Kalua is at the height of his oration, he tends to be you know, as much in the middle as I could keep him. Yeah. And and that, you know, from being slightly below the eye line in the middle of the frame, it reinforces the the, the real traits of the character. Um, your director, Shaka King, said that one of his favorite shots was William O'Neill's apartment when he's in silhouette that we have, it's nighttime and we have the big, the two big windows. Yeah. Um, and it, he loves it because, first of all, just aesthetically, it's beautiful, but also it shows a real loneliness and gives us an indication of who he is and what his character is. Um, do you agree with that being one of the favorites? And if not, what is your favorite shot? You know, I, I try not to have favorites. But you got to have something that you're kind of like, when it comes on the screen, you're like, all right, yeah, we did it. We nailed it. There's got to well, be something. Uh, you know, hopefully they're all like that. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I, I do love that shot. And I yeah. love the fact that 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 they kept it in the silhouette because mm. there would have been a lot of temptation there to 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 pull the image up so that we could see more of what was in the room. Mm. But the the real power is the fact that you don't see it in your mind. You are projecting as to what you think that room is, and it's a pretty shitty place. Mm. So mm. so no, I love that shot, and um, I think the the shot that makes me smile the most is a really simple one. Um, that's, you know, when O'Neill is given a car and we see him driving down the street and it cuts to a, 
uh, a camera through the window um, as he makes a, a big U-turn. Yeah, yeah. Up the um, the other Panthers, but then as as the the car drives away, the camera stays behind and just pans over with a little pan, mm-hmm. and you know just stand, stands there in a wide shot. And you know this was something that that Shocker just very casually said, "Oh, can we do this? Can we have?" you know, the, the camera stay behind. And, you know, it sounds like an easy thing, um, but we made it really difficult to begin with. Why? How do you do Well, you know, the camera has to be really securely locked down onto the window mount. Ah. Uh, and the actual release of the camera to, to move it away from the mount, you know, you want that to be smooth so that you can't tell it's happening. And we looked at electromagnets. We looked at, at ways of trying to get the steady cam under there and, and lifting off with the steady cam. We looked at strapping a steady cam operator to the side of the car, you know, cranes and this, that, and the other. And, and in the end, um, it was like, well, none of those are going to work. But what if we just get a quick release plate? And as the car pulls up, you know, myself and a grip and the focus puller were standing in the middle of the road. So it goes around us. As it stops, we just walked in. I put my hand on the camera. As the Panthers get into the car, it wobbles on the suspension. And within that wobble, the grip released the quick release. And wow. I carefully picked up the camera. So in the end, it was incredibly simple. But uh, it, you know, the, the process of months of trying to make it really difficult just made <laughs> me smile. You know, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the simplest approach is the best approach. Always. Yeah. And I love the excitement in your face as you talk about this little scene because that's where you really see the passion of filmmaking, I think. It's just just having to solve a problem and having it look beautiful. Like that is really such it's 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 the essence of filmmaking. Beautiful images despite problems and solving them to get yeah. there. I love that. And it's it's also listening to what the director says. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah. he just said it as a casual aside, not thinking that it would cause us months of sort of angst and searching. Um, but you know, if it's a good idea, so you got to go with it. it happen. You got to go with it. The last thing I want to talk to you about is movement, camera movement. Um, there, there's there's a significant amount of movement in this film, uh, but it, it's all very tasteful, you know, for lack of a better word. Talk to me about your philosophy for movement in this film and how you executed it. Part of what we're trying to get across was that these are young, dynamic, useful, passionate people. Um, And they're moving forward. They're doing things. They're they're trying to change the world that they're in. And we wanted a, a constant movement to kind of echo that. You know, they're alive. And But again, it's going back to sort of classic 60s. You know, it's track and dolly. It's very simple, and it's always very considered. And it has to feel organic. It has to come from the scene itself. You can't impose it on the scene. And and that was the approach. You know, keep what do you what do you mean by that? that well, because, coming from the scene and not imposing it. Well, imposing on it. That you're you're specifically following the actors, or the the the. Okay. There's something that's leading you from here to here to here. But there's a very specific story element that you want to link two things together. So there was always a reason. You know, quite often, you know, you'll see in a film, there'll be a sudden crane move. It's like, well, 
why? Why was that there? And it's like, okay, well, they had a crane that day and they had to use it. Um, so it's, it's true. We got to use this thing. We paid yeah. for it. I can see a producer in the background it's, screaming it's, that. And so it's like, you, you know, from my point of view, you're always trying to avoid drawing attention to the camera because that then throws the audience out of the film. And that's the last thing you want to do. You want to keep them in that world. You want to keep them absolutely invested in the story. So you don't want to do anything cack-handed that's going to make them think, oh, it's a film. Yeah. And so, you know, trying to keep those moves subtle, trying to keep them motivated. Um, if there was no reason to move, then we didn't move. So, it's you know, again, simplicity goes back very similar to the, the style of, of a lot of the films shot in that era. Yeah. Well, the film is just absolutely gorgeous. And for those of you guys that have not seen it yet, I strongly suggest you do Judas and the Black Messiah. And we'll put a link to all of the stuff we talked about in the show notes today. Um, one last thing, Sean, because we've got a question from the from uh, one of our listeners. Let me pull this up here from Jaden Lynn on Twitter. He wants to know how was the in-camera effect of the reflection of the bar sign on the car window achieved? And I think anybody that has seen this film, you know exactly this point because it really was, it really stood out, that shot. Like you, you really yeah. do notice that bar sign. You're supposed to, but you really do notice it. I'd love to know too. So Jaden, thank you for your question. How did that happen? It was incredibly complicated. <laughs> um, we let the CGI people do it. <laughs> I love it. I had a feeling. I had a feeling, but I, you never know. I so much wanted to do it in real life. But again, you know, the time that it would have mm -hmm. taken and nighttime, exterior, Cleveland, winter, with too much to do on the schedule, you know, that's one of those things. It's like, okay, let's, let's kick this somewhere else. Did you have to make any accommodations for that red kind of neon light were you put was that were you putting that into the car window or anything or just letting it no, all be cg well it was actually in front of the bar so the neon light was on oh so you got the real um spill of light onto onto the car but again you have to be very careful with those things because you know the camera of course is in the way so you don't want to throw the camera shadow on so yeah. you know to to have done it for real um it, it just would have taken too long. I love it. Well, I've had so much fun talking to you and the film is great and you have to come back for your next movie. What are you working on now? <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I, I am going to be starting soon and I think I'm allowed to say it. Um, a, a, a huge change for me. I mean, the, the complete polar opposite to this film um, and that's um, Captain Marvel 2. Oh, wow. That is an opposite direction for sure. Oh, that's going to be a blast, though. That's going to be so fun. Yeah, I know. It's different. I, I believe, you know, as a cinematographer, you should be able to work in every genre. Of course. And um, and this scares the shit out of me. So, you know, all the more reason to do it. What are you most scared of? Well, it's the, the CGI world. You know, mm -hmm. that technology is moving on so quickly. And and trying to to not get lost in the CGI and remember that it's, you know, it's actually about the people. It's about the characters. I know you like to operate. You operate quite a bit. Will you be oh, operating yeah. on that one Absolutely. as well? Yeah. 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 No, operating's the fun bit. You know, I, I don't want to give that away. 
Yes. Well, you are in for a wild time with that movie for sure. You're going to have a blast and I cannot wait. Start start remembering all this. Just start building a bank of stories in your mind so that next time you're on, you can give us all the, all the behind the scenes details. All right? I'll, I'll do my best. Yes. Sean Bobbitt, BSC. Where can people go to find you online or can they go to find you no, online? I have no presence at all. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Well, there you go, guys. This is it. You got him right here in the flesh. That's it. Forget about social media. He's yeah. right here. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. The film is fantastic. And this was a lot of fun. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. All right. I want to thank Sean Bobbitt, BSC, for coming on the show and talking to us all about Judas and the Black Messiah. I hope you guys love this episode as much as I did, but let us know. Send us a message. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, and follow us there. We have a lot of exclusive content on YouTube. And if you're listening to me, but you want to see me for whatever reason, <laughs> you want to see our guests, you can do that at YouTube because all of our episodes are there at our YouTube channel. Of course, you can get to all of these things by going to gocreativeshow.com. I want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby, for putting this whole thing together behind the scenes. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And Dave Siegel for mixing, mastering, and making the show sound so good. Siegelsound.com. Of course, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me as well, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ben Consoli. I post a lot of photos of behind the scenes of the show, obviously, but then also my work on set, my directing work, and the work that I do with my production company. So if you like behind the scenes production stuff, cameras and how things are made and all of that, then you should be following me at Ben Consoli. I want to thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.